Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. Hello and welcome to Voice of the Church. We've been looking for the last two weeks at Christ's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. A multifaceted diamond in which every angle highlights some aspect of who Christ is and of what he's come to do. And so we've seen in the last few weeks that he is the son of David, whose heavenly kingdom has no end. He is the son of Abraham, whose kingdom has a universal reach. And now we see that he's also the friend of sinners. I mentioned last week how genealogies in ancient times did not generally include women, And so when Matthew includes four of them in his, we take note. We talked about how the women mentioned are Gentiles, suggesting the worldwide scope of Christ's mission, which Matthew will go on to unfold throughout his gospel. But the church father, Jerome, thought that there might have been another reason why Matthew includes these women. Not simply because they're Gentiles, although that's part of it, but also because they're sinners. And not just sinners in the sense that all of us are sinners, but uh, sinners in the way the gospel writers often speak of Jesus as dining with tax collectors and sinners. Those who are notorious for public scandalous sin, often involving even sexual misconduct. Jerome said that's the kind of people Jesus came to save, and that's why these women are highlighted at least in part, to anticipate these sinners of Matthew one twenty one, whom Christ came to save. Or of Matthew chapter 9, of whom Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to heal those who are well, who are healthy, but those who are sick, those who know themselves to be sinners. And so it's worth exploring then whether Jerome might have been on to something. Each of these women either sinned sexually or were, in some sense, regarded as sinners. You remember the story of Tamar in Genesis 38? There was a man named Judah who, after he and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery, he went down into the region of the Canaanites, and it tells us that he took a wife. And already that's not something that he's supposed to be doing, but nevertheless he does. And he and his wife have three sons, the first of which takes a wife named Tamar. But it tells us that God strikes him down because he is um, wicked. And, And so the second son is then told to take Tamar as a wife so that he can raise up a child for his late brother. And so he gladly takes Tamar for himself. But then he goes and takes precautions to make sure that they cannot have a child. So God strikes him down as well. Now, the youngest son of Judah would uh, be next in line to take Tamar as his wife, but he's too young. And so Judah says to her, Go and remain in your father's house as a widow until my son is of age. Genesis 38.11 suggests that he does this out of fear, that she's bad luck or, or cursed in some way. 
In other words, he is oblivious to the fact that his two sons are the evil ones. And so she's sent away to live as a widow with no husband or sons to take care of her, to provide for her. And she's unable to marry because she would have been required by law only to marry this younger brother once he's old enough. But Judah has no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar. So what he's doing is cruel. And she recognizes this and concocts a plan. Judah goes up to the sheep shearing festival sometime later. Her plan is to follow him there, dress up as a temple prostitute, and engage Judah as a client. This is one of the most scandalous passages in all the Bible. Judah, her father-in-law, does not recognize her. He goes on to lie with her, and and later on, when he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he wants to burn her until she reveals who the father is, at which point his mouth is shut. She ends up giving birth to two twins, Perez and Zerah, the first of which is part of the line of Christ. It's quite a scandalous family tree. Or you can think of Rahab. Uh, Rahab, unlike Tamar, has not engaged in immorality just once out of a a sense of desperation, but is a more blatant transgressor as, as this is her occupation, prostitution. She has, in some sense, uh, chosen a a life of sin. And and so we have in Rahab a Canaanite prostitute, about as despicable a character as anyone in the Old Testament could imagine. Christ's genealogy is not one that any of us would be proud to claim. Ruth and Bathsheba are also included. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. Verse 6 actually doesn't even mention her by name, but simply says... David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In other words, the wife who belonged to Uriah, David stole for himself, impregnated either willingly or more likely by coercion, as I don't know she would have had a choice, and then he killed her husband. Any husband listening knows what a wicked, wicked sin David commits. And yet David, the murderous adulterer who abuses his authority, and Bathsheba, the object of his lust, are both included in the line of Christ. And in verse 5, we have Ruth, who I've saved for last, as she's the one who it's least clear whether she sinned sexually. You know the story. Ruth chapter 3, Naomi, her mother-in-law, conjures up a plan to have Ruth go in the dark of night, anointed with perfume, to the man Boaz, who after he's done drinking and goes to sleep, she'll lay at the foot of his bed and uncover his feet. Now, the passage does not explicitly describe any impropriety, but but it does leave the reader with a sense that, that something more might have been going on. It tells us that she goes in the dark of night. She is a Moabitess, and, and she waits until he's had his fill of good drink. Which reminds us of Genesis 19, where the Moabite line itself begins with Lot's daughters getting him drunk and lying with him in his sleep. And so we have a, a, an interesting parallel that, that might be suggestive. 
And the phrase to uncover his feet is often used as a euphemism for more than just feet. Now, ultimately, I don't think anything happens between the two of them. Both of them seem to be commended as virtuous. But all of these details certainly make the reader suspicious. In fact, we might say the suspicion surrounding Ruth and Boaz anticipates the suspicion that arises when Mary gets pregnant out of wedlock. And so what we have here is a family line that is filled with all sorts of questionable or checkered past women who have sinned sexually, women who have been suspected of sinning sexually, or those who have been victimized sexually. And Christ comes to identify with them. He does not hide these skeletons in his closet, but he hangs them up on his wall for all to see. Do you see what Matthew's telling us? You may be listening and you've committed unspeakable sins. Maybe like Rahab, they're sexual, maybe they're not. And you find yourself wondering whether God's grace could extend even to someone like you. But why not? If Christ claims prostitutes as his own, why not you? As the old hymn says, Jesus sinners doth receive. He is the one who Isaiah says was numbered with transgressors. Come to him and he will have you. Or maybe like Bathsheba or even in some sense Tamar, you've been forced to do something that is despicable. You've been victimized. You've been mistreated. You've been asked to participate in things that make you feel dirty and make you feel guilty. Christ comes to identify with you in your shame. Isn't that what he's doing as he welcomes these people into his family line? Isn't that what he's doing as he hangs naked on a Roman cross? Christ identifies with you in your shame and victimization. Or maybe like Ruth, you're a noble and virtuous woman, but that's not stopped people from saying things about you, just as it didn't stop people from saying things about Mary. You know what? Neither did it stop them from saying things about Christ. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. They watched suspiciously as he treated women with love and dignity. They made up claims about him that he was a blasphemer. Christ is the chief example of being a victim of slander and gossip. And so maybe you're listening and that's you. You've done nothing wrong, but that's not stopped people from pointing the finger. And now you feel like you're all alone. But you're not. Here Christ comes to identify with you. Do you see what an encouragement this genealogy is? Whether you've committed great sin, whether you've been a victim of someone else's sin, or or whether you've been falsely accused of sin, Christ will have you. And so the message of of Christmas, the, the message of this genealogy, is not only that Christ has come into this world, but that he's come to save sinners and sufferers like you and like me. He's come to save those who have been ravaged by the sins of others or filled with guilt because of their own sins. And he says, come, I will take your shame. Come, I am a friend of sinners. He says that to you today. 
by grace, he will wash you of your sin and of your shame as you look to him in faith, the friend of sinners. That's what Christmas is ultimately all about, Jesus Christ, who is the friend of sinners. And thank you for listening today, and may God bless you.